0: newspaper since
1: 1971. Bonus time to Ben Drovsky show as I speak, as I speak, well, wow, I can't even speak. Feb, uh, it's Friday, February 10th, 2023. Here's a headline in the New York Times. I I know I'm supposed to take this story seriously, but I, I never took it seriously. I've been laughing at it uh, since it emerged because the world's utterly insane. And here's the headline, the latest. China balloon carried tools to reap data. The Biden administration provided uh, its most comprehensive description of the Chinese spy balloon that traversed the United States last week, saying on Thursday that the machine was part of a global surveillance fleet directed by Chinese military and was capable of collecting electronic communications. I know I'm supposed to take this stuff seriously, ladies and gentlemen. It's really hard to take it seriously because so much is embedded in here. The notion, first of all, that we should be outraged and shocked that China is spying on us when we all know they're spying us—we're spying on them. Everybody spies on each other. So, like the notion that we're shocked and surprised by it is ridiculous. Secondly, the perhaps most absurd uh, part of the story was the insistence of the Chinese government that it was a weather <laughs> a weather balloon. I'm sorry, I Kim. <laughs> I, a weather balloon that went off course. I have a hard time getting that one out. Listen, I'm used, as I said earlier in this, uh, this week, I am so used to politicians lying to me. I, I have lived in the city of Chicago since 1981. I have heard every conceivable lie that a mayor can possibly tell. And I've sort of drawn a distinction between a lie, a fib, an embellishment, a creative use of facts, You know, not stating all the facts, not putting it into full context. There's all these, like different degrees of disinformation but i don't believe any chicago mayor has tried anything as bodacious as saying well that balloon is a weather balloon. sorry it's really hard to take it seriously folks from the chinese government it's a weather balloon so of course the united states they shoot it down They shoot down the balloon with like a missile or something. And now they're like, look, we have evidence. It's not a weather balloon. (laughs) Like anyone, like, and here's the funny thing. MAGA probably believes that it was a weather. You know, MAGA may believe they hate Biden more than they hate anyone else. So who knows how this is going to get translated into MAGA. They may have a congressional hearing. Was it a weather balloon? Congressman Jordan from Ohio will lead that one. All right, enough on that. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Take it away, distinguished guest.
0: Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, right here in the great city of Chicago. Uh, I'm a contributing writer at The Week, Newsweek, and Slate, and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Um, so yeah, the weather balloon. How about that, huh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen anybody get that out of shape about a balloon since the Hindenburg. Man, that was really something.
1: So, oh my God, the weather balloon, the Chinese. <laughs> Come on, guys, you can work on it a little bit. Maybe you should like send some a bunch of your uh, your PR team over to Chicago and listen to how Chicago mayors lie. You know what I mean? Like Laquam uh, Laquam McDonald tape, Rahm Emanuel. I never saw it until you saw it. You know things like that. He's now that you could, hey, you know what? He's in Japan, Rahm Emanuel. Just send a delegation over to Japan. I'll have to sit down and break bread with you and tell you how you the, the, pro, pro, the correct way uh, to tell a lie so that people believe it, uh, even though nobody <laughs> believes it. Um, all right, uh, David, you wrote, uh, as I told you before, an absolutely what I thought hilarious uh, account of Joe Biden's, um, President Biden's, I'm not friends with him, President Biden's uh, State of the Union address and all the theatrics and histrionics that occurred last Tuesday Uh, and an analysis of what Biden was up to, what the Republicans were up to, uh, and uh, what it all means. And there were just some funny lines, uh, which I'm going to ask you to riff on this a little bit, but... Uh, your discussion of uh, Senator Rick Scott's spectacularly stupid plan, that's your words, uh, for Social Security and Medicare cuts. Uh, Joe Biden, who is incapable of <laughs> ending a sentence where he wants to end it, gets all confused when you're saying that Social Security cuts are off the table or wait, is it under the table, on the table, off the block? I don't know. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene dressed like Cruella de Will. Uh, it's just quite a bit of funny lines that you have in there that are all sort of making a larger point. So why don't you just riff a little bit uh, and tell us what you thought about what went down on Tuesday with the State of the Union address?
0: Sure. Um, <clears throat> I don't. I have a theory that that President Biden took several claret and before he he gave that speech because he was he was with it and happy and like kind of you know bouncing a step in a way that you rarely see with our our eighty year old president. Um, And uh, you know the centerpiece of the night, he went on for an hour hour plus hour ten. It was like a Bill Clinton length State of the Union. You know, it was it was quite long. and but the only thing anybody's ever gonna remember about this speech was the exchange that um that he had with Republicans about Social Security and Medicare. Um and he, you know, he started talking about the the debt ceiling and you know we're not gonna be held hostage. And then and he said, you know, um some of the Republicans here want to sunset Social Security and Medicare. And they just went crazy, you know, they were like, Boo, oh, no, we don't want to do that, you know, just like, uh, I don't know what you I don't know what you're talking about, you know. Um I don't know if you've ever seen a sketch comedy show called uh, I Think You Should Leave. Um, but there's a there's a sketch that became a, a political meme where um, a guy dressed in a hot dog suit and a hot dog car crashes into a clothing store and then gets out and pretends like and, and it's like he it stands next to the people trying to figure out what happened, you know, uh, <laughs> like like he's just one of the crowd. You know, and he turns to the person next to him and he says, we're all just trying to figure out what happened here. We're all just trying to figure out who did this. Um, and it became a kind of a meme for every time someone um, was complaining about something that they were obviously responsible for. Someone posts the picture of, of the hot dog guy being like, we're all just trying to figure out who did this, you know. Um, and that's Republicans being like, whoa, we're, who did that? Who could possibly have made a proposal to cut Social Security and Medicare on our side of the aisle? That's so preposterous. Um, and it just so happens that someone did make that proposal on their side of the aisle. It was um, Rick Scott, you know, uh, below replacement level Republican senator from Florida, the former governor who uh, um, was once, uh, I believe, was levied a $1.7 billion fine for his mismanagement of, uh, of retirement homes before he became uh, America's worst senator. I'm sorry, but still, Ron Johnson is still out there, right? So sorry. You're number two, Rick. Um, so he had he released a plan right around right around the elections um that was like we're gonna get spending under control by uh, we're gonna force the federal government to reauthorize all of its spending programs every five years. All of them. Yeah. You know? Um and it's like, my man, what is wrong with you? Like, I mean, it takes Congress like 14 months to pass one bill. Uh, after they take office, you know, like it takes them nine months to negotiate a spending bill amongst themselves when they have a majority. And you want to force the American Congress to reauthorize all federal spending programs every five years. It's a naked ploy to cut Social Security and Medicare because they will, they, those are the big ticket items that'll be up for, you know, um, up for reapproval every five years. And like what, what do you think is going to happen if you do this every five years? Like every, you know, every other cycle the republicans are going to be in charge of it and they'll cut it because they've always wanted to cut it uh, you know so they can hoot and holler in the back of the room all they want um, but that's the reality of the situation and biden just you know uh like i don't know if you've ever seen a cat playing with a mouse that it's about to kill but that was biden for about 10 minutes with the republicans on, on tuesday night it was incredible uh, because they were like oh no would say that And he was like okay why don't you contact my office i'll send you a copy of the proposal i'm not going to name names wink wink um but uh, but you all know this person is in the audience and he made this proposal um and then he got them <laughs> he got them to stand up and applaud for seniors and and, and social security and medicare like force republicans to be like he's like oh uh, oh so you all don't want to cut these programs that's great i'm a big fan of conversion um let's hear it folks stand up for social security and medicare Um, you know, everybody's worried about them being cut, but I I guess that won't be a problem because no one in this room wants to cut social security, Medicare, right? It just went on and on and on. It was like a five minute exchange. Um, and (laughs) by the end of that exchange, Biden was like, so pleased with himself. I've never seen, I've never seen Biden like this before. Um, because usually at any five minute increment of Joe Biden speaking, something terrible has transpired, you know, with his, like the translation, uh, of his thoughts into words, uh, you know, in part, part, large part due to his, his stuttering problem, which is not his fault, you know, uh, but he's also not like, let's be honest, he's not a wordsmith anyway, right? Um, and he did say, uh, all right, well, we all agree that social security is off the books. That means that you're going to cancel them. Okay? No, it's, it's not off the books. So anyway, um, Republicans, just they walked into this trap, you know, the, uh, like McCarthy in, uh, in October, when they thought they were going to sweep into the house with a big majority, started talking about how he was going to hold up the debt ceiling for spending programs. Like what is, what does anyone think that they mean when they say when Republicans say, I want to cut spending, does anyone think they mean the military, you know Um, does anyone think that they mean anything other than social spending programs? Because that's what they want to cut. That's what they always want to cut. Um, And so for them to, to like just uh, be on national TV, communicating this faux outrage about Biden's accusation was hilarious. He knew it. Um he, he knew he had them right where he wanted them. Uh, and now, you know, now they're all on record They're like, oh no, we don't want to cut social security and Medicare. That's great, that's great to talk. Yeah. So it's good, it was fine. Well,
1: let, let, let's take pause and, and and uh take a deeper dive into that. Uh this bizarre political theater that's going on where the Republicans, when they're serious policymakers, and I've seen this down through the years. I remember George Bush after he was won, won re-election in '84 was the same way. '84, uh, 04, excuse me. Uh, it, when they're serious, they're doing their serious policy proposals. We, they always say, we must put entitlement programs on the table. The time uh, they'll go bankrupt. Uh, we must deal with these problems and then there's ideologues who say we're better off just going everybody putting their money in the stock market anyway you know so there's people who aren't even talking about deficits uh or what have you that just believe it somehow or other it's safer and better to go in the markets but then when there, uh, there's a counterpunch for the democrats they get angry and so you have marjorie taylor green jumping up going liar liar uh when Biden is just explaining what the Republicans have proposed. So what, what are they doing here, David, where they, they propose one thing and they get mad when the Democrats point out what they're proposing and they deny that they're proposing
0: it, even as they're proposing it? Help us understand this. <laughs> right, sure. <clears throat> I mean, the Republican Party has an ideological animus against these programs just as they have an ideological animus against all uh, federally administered spending programs, all state administered spending programs. um, I mean, the the leadership of the party has long been on record as wanting to take federal spending back to the levels of the 19th century. Um, But prior to, you know, not just the New Deal, but like everything that preceded the New Deal, um, they want to return federal spending to levels that that haven't been seen in 150 years as a percentage of GDP, right? Um, and that's just, that's, a, that's like a bananas position to take, right? Like, I mean, y- you would be just radically shrinking the size of the American government um, and doing away with a bunch of programs that people have come to really count on. Um, but that's the project. Uh, I think sometimes, like, when you, you get in the fog of the day-to-day political combat and whatever Ron DeSantis has said, and um, you know, Taylor Green and Matt Gates and all the circus in Washington... I think it's easy to lose track of the fact that we like you're going to spend the rest of your life in the same ideological battle with these people. Right? Um, on the one side are, are people like us um, who, who would like to see the United States move closer to the social democr- you know, social democracy model of, of Northern Europe, um, where you have know, gener- generous um, social spending programs and a, and a floor beneath which a human being in your society can't really fall. Because you've set it, you know, you've set up ways to prevent that from happening, um, and you have people on the other side of the aisle who are who are who are committed to a vision of economic liberty that is like just incompatible with with any kind of equality. It's a it's a it's a ruthless version of capitalism. Um, they have always resented the New Deal programs. They resented them at the time, um, and the opponents of those programs gradually became the majority under Reagan, um, and they. <clears throat> I mean, majority of the Republican Party. Okay, There was like 30, 40 years where Republicans were like, oh, we can't touch this stuff. <laughs> you know? um, and then Reagan got into power and they were like, oh, OK, maybe we can touch this stuff. And every time they would put their hand on the rail, uh, they would get electrocuted, uh, just like Bush did in 2004 in when he was elected. And, and his first idea was to cut Social Security and Medicare. And he, remember, he went on, he went on uh, the news and said, I've got a mandate. <sighs> you know listen so I've got a mandate to do this you know the voters gave me a mandate and everybody was like no uh, they gave you a mandate to kill Osama bin Laden or whatever you know they didn't, they didn't think you <laughs> they didn't think you were gonna cut their Social security man. Um, so they've always wanted to do it right but, but they understand that it's political poison right it's like a it's like a big ideological change that they want to impose on the American people um, but they don't want to have their fingerprints on it And the way to avoid having their fingerprints on it is to cause a big budget crisis that forces uh, everyone to to think that there's been a that that all parties have agreed to these cuts. Um, It's what happened during the Obama era when they did this in 2011. I think it was 11, right? Um, And they created this thing called sequestration, right? The sequester. Remember the sequester, where they were like, if we don't agree to cut X amount of the federal budget by this date. Um, we got this thing where I point my gun at you, you point your gun at me. I'm going to cut social security and you're going to cut the military, right? Everybody loses. And they thought like, well, surely, (laughs) surely they'll come to an agreement because no one wants this like mutual budget cutting of things they really care about. And they weren't able to do it. Like this, they, they did the sequester went into effect. There was a, there was a broad across the board cuts, um, economically harmful. I might add, I think really hurt the Democrats in 2014 in particular, Um, but that's, that's what they've always wanted to do. Um, but of course they're not going to go out in public. I mean, most of them are not as stupid as Rick Scott. Okay. And and don't go out. It's just the most preposterous plan that they possibly, it's like a Democrat going out and being like, you know what? Um, every five years, we're going to have to reauthorize the existence of uh, the Navy. Is that cool with everyone? Okay. So every five years, we're just going to put you on trial Like uh, Jack Nicholson and a few good men. And you got to, you know, dance for me. Uh, What is it that you say you do here? Um, You know, bring in the consultants. Be like, what's the military really for? You know, (laughs) What do you do here? Uh, And if you don't like it, you cut it. You know, that would be, I would say, not uh, politically beneficial for Democrats to do, even if it's something that they think. Um, And so that's what you have here. You have Rick Scott saying the quiet part out loud. Unfortunately, the whole party kind of taking the fall for it. But in a broader sense, it's not like they—they don't really make a big secret of this, anyway. You know, um, McCarthy's denying that he wants to cut these programs, but he's—that's like the whole reason he got into politics was to destroy the New Deal. <laughs> you know, like go read the the Young Guns, the book about him and Paul Ryan, and ding dong, the losses primary, Eric Cantor. Um, this is what they've always wanted to do. So you know. Well, uh, Biden very
1: effectively, uh, as you pointed out, uh, both on the show and in your essay, uh, very uh, effectively uh, set them up. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, when you were talking, I was just substituting uh, for Social, Social Security and Medicare, Obamacare. And it's a similar game at play uh, where the Republicans have this knee-jerk reaction against Uh, a very popular program that's much needed. Uh, We we came to the point in in politics in America where it was very close to killing Obamacare because the Republican Party, the base of the Republican Party, who probably needs, many of them need Obamacare, uh, were insanely dedicated to destroying it and not replacing it. Uh, And it was, of course, John McCain, one vote, that kept it. and uh, I, my, my central belief, other than uh, they're, they're serving the needs of rich people uh, who don't want uh, tax dollars going to anybody, although I don't even want to put Social Security Medicare in this context, David, because it's, it's basically insurance programs that people pay into. Um, but uh, there's this, this general notion, in the Republican Party, that anything a Democrat comes up to, with, uh, we're going to be against. Because we don't want to give the Democrats any benefit that look like they know what they're doing, or they're effective. Uh, so that's that's just my that's how I view it. You know what I'm saying? It's just a knee jerk opposition to anything Democrats come up with, uh, which of course uh, destroys any notion that we're going to have bipartisanship over the next two years. Uh, so I think uh, Biden did a good job of sort of illustrate. Do you, do you kind of buy into that theory about anything year four we're
0: against? I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the basic dynamic in Washington right now. Um, but I also think that there is a cold political logic too. Um, like I, I think that they would pay, I think they would pay a huge price for, for cutting or eliminating or privatizing these programs um, maybe over a single election. But in the long run, social security and Medicare are huge uh, issues on which Democrats have is what we call in political science issue ownership over. Uh, That means the public trusts them on these issues more than they trust Republicans. Uh, The protection of these programs, uh, their existence, their exalted status in our politics, all of that redounds to the benefit of the Democratic Party. Take take aside the actual policy merits of these programs, which are huge. Um, But the politics of it has always been a Democrat invented these programs, Democrats defend them, People love them. They keep a lot of people out of poverty and off the street in their old age. Um, and Republicans want to destroy them, uh, right? Because of an ideological animus to um, to government-administered spending programs, also be, for transferring money to the wealthy, right? Like if you privatize Social Security, you know, suddenly there's trillions of dollars in fees going to the uh, into the equity markets and the hedge fund managers and the people that process these trades. Um, it's a it's an absolute bonanza um, of uh, of privatization of public risk, um, and not just the, the the fee the fee people, right? The administration of private wealth <clears throat> has much higher overhead than social security does. You know, um, like a, a wealth management firm, um, or, or any kind of like someone who manages your stocks and your investments and your portfolio they get paid way more money um, than someone that works for the social security administration. Uh, Just like a, you know, like a a mid-level civil servant makes, you know, a a fraction of what these people make. Um, And so, you know, it's so social security is a very efficient program uh, in addition to being a very effective program. And so, you know, there's, there's definitely this, uh, this element of, you know, whatever, you know, Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you I'm rubber in your glue. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's a, really, <laughs> a really big ideological component to this
1: too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh there's and there's money to be made. Can't overlook that. Uh all right. Uh you mentioned issue ownership and that's a, a way of segueing into Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis, uh who is sort of positioned himself. Uh, as the number one alternative to Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee in 2024. Uh, And there was an essay in the New York Times, which I sent to you, and I presume you dutifully read, and this is such a classic, standard New York Times essay. I've been reading these. Uh, the names change on who w- would write the essay. And this one particular particular was written by a columnist named Pamela Paul. But it could be David Brooks. It could be Tom Friedman. It could be um, the fellow who ran, uh, Nicholas Kristof, who ran for governor in, 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 of Oregon. It's always this, uh, an appeal to the left to be more like the Republicans appeal to Democrats, I should say, to be more like the Republicans. And in this particular headline uh, is what liberals can learn from Ron DeSantis. Uh, and I have many feelings on this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, about the notion that there are things about the way Ron DeSantis goes about politics that liberals can learn from and perhaps emulate uh, to their advantage.
0: Uh, so take it away, David. <sighs> Pamela Paul, I, sh, sh, this is, this is her shtick, man. I mean, she's like, I'm a liberal, but I really like, I mean, i find some things really appealing about Ron DeSantis, you know? Um, it's, <laughs> it's like if you're in a marriage and then your partner starts going out every night without you, you know, and you're like, what's that all about? Um, and soon, you know, pretty soon they just, they just leave you. That's the Paul, Pamela Paul, obviously she's going to vote for Ron DeSantis. Okay. I'll bet you a thousand dollars that she will ultimately end up voting for Ron DeSantis. Um, and so this column is just a, a piece of performance art of the, of, a, of the genre of sort of like whitewashing DeSantis's record um, in a way that, that is like, I don't like him. Right. But... He's got a point about these fifteen things that I agree with him about. <laughs> one of which is education, um, probably the big one. And uh, you know, the Ron DeSantis is doing just the completely insane things to the public universities of Florida. Right? Um, they are going just full frontal uh, assault against the idea of tenure, um, which is you know has its faults, right? But like is the is the cornerstone of academic freedom. Um, he is um, one of the things she links to in her piece is about the the takeover that they've staged of a small public liberal arts college. It's called the New College of Florida. Um, and on the board of trustees have they placed just a bunch of maniacs, including Chris Rufo, who I think we've talked about on the show before. Um, the, you know, the the ringleader of the, you know, mythological battle against critical race theory um, is now on the he doesn't even live in Florida, but he's now on the. He's now on the board of trustees of, uh, of this, of this little university, um, Florida. So the new college, I, I don't think that we have this in Illinois, but uh, some States have these like little colleges that are public, um, but that are small liberal arts colleges that tend to be, you know, pretty liberal places. Um, one of the conservatives are always picking on this place in Washington called evergreen college. Um, and, uh, and so DeSantis took a look at the landscape here and and was like, what are my powers? Oh, I can completely make the public university system. Let's do that. Um, and so she's like, well, you know, I mean, the, the universities have become these uh, ideological echo chambers. You know, that's not good. So I don't I mean I don't agree with what he's doing, right? But he's responding to a real public critique of the universities, something like that, right? And uh, you know, like I don't, <clears throat> I don't agree that you should not be able to say the word gay. In front of a third grader, but they're responding to a real, you know, parental concern. So we just, you know, we, we don't want certain concepts taught to our preschoolers or whatever. Um, so at every, everything that she says, um, I don't really agree with DeSantis about this, but this is what we could learn from it. Um, what she's really saying is, I, I agree with Ron DeSantis about these things, right? Like, I don't want my kids taught um, anything about gender until they're in fourth grade, as if some, like, magical... Um, you know, intellectual processing apparatus has been, has been created between the third and the fourth grade. And suddenly you can learn about these concepts without, uh, suddenly turning trans or something (laughs) like, I don't know what, I don't, you know, I don't know what the impetus is here. Right. But like, the idea is that a lot of parents, there's, there was some silent majority of parents who were uncomfortable with what was being taught to their second graders. Um, and then Ron DeSantis, the hero, like steps in, passes this anti-woke bill, half of which has ended up in court. Um, and the practical effect is that like Florida librarians are afraid that they're going to go to jail, um, for, for stalking the wrong book, right? What's ter- what's turned into is a, is a book banning, um, an idea banning and class banning movement, um, uh, an ideological project to remake public education, um, and the image of the modern MAGA Republican party strip out any critique of, um, of white supremacy strip out any nuance about American history. Um, you know, like it's just very telling to me that they don't want Florida public high school students like learning or reading Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, which, who's like um, not even like the top 10 or 20 most radical um, black thinkers in this country. Um, but as a, a, a wonderful writer hasn't been in the public eye as much as, as he used to be. I think he got tired of it, (laughs) but um, anyway, so that's what, that's what's going on with Pamela Paul, right? She actually likes a lot of this stuff. um, And she wants Democrats to come out and be like, yeah, I mean, like let's not teach second graders about, about gender and gender identity and sexual identity. Let's just, like she thinks that there's some sort of political uh, benefit to be had from, from Democrats coming out and, um, attacking ideological conformity in universities and um, siding with with parents in their, in their war against their children being taught these terrible concepts when they're kindergartners. And I just don't think that that's the case. Um, I, I don't think that there's much movement to be had here for Democrats for uh, uh, sort of signing up for this crusade from a slightly more skeptical perspective. Um, I think that what she wants to see happen is what happened with defund the police. Right. Where you had like this, you know, you had this movement on the activist left, this phrase was coined. And then every democratic politician spent the next two years, like running away from it. Um, like it was Michael Myers. Uh, and she, you know, so she, she wants the party to distance itself from, um, every, every conceivable excess in, in public and higher education. Um, and that's—it's not going to happen, eh? But it also shouldn't happen, right? Like the things that DeSantis are doing are are wrong and they're bad ideas. But there is also uh, there's a broader racial uh, and political project behind this. Right? Um, one is is to is to destroy black power in Florida, black political power. Um, the other is that I think that. I think that at the root of all of this stuff, um, the CRT panic, the trans panic, uh, the like, what are our fifth graders learning panic, the there's too many liberals in higher education panic. I mean, by the way, just go to Harvard and ask how many actual liberals there are at Harvard. Okay. A lot of people that vote democratic, but are actually deeply conservative um, in terms of their outlook. Uh, try organizing a union on most university campuses and trying to get a professor to like join a strike. Good luck. Um, what's behind a lot of this stuff is Republicans think that the young people are slipping away from them, which they are. And they think it's the fault of indoctrination in the schools. That's what I mean. I have a, I'm going to write something about this next week. Um, but my unified theory of Ron DeSantis and DeSantisism. Can we say that? Is that a thing that we, can we coin that DeSantisism? DeSantisism? Yeah, go with it. DeSantisism. It's hard to say. That's for sure. DeSantisism. (laughs) The gas stove moms really believe in DeSantisism, you know? So, um, but uh, the the unified theory, (laughs) my unified theory of Ron DeSantis is that they think they can arrest the party's like really dire demographic situation with young people by preventing them from seeing the things that they think are turning young people against them. Right. Like in Chris Rufo's mind, in Ron DeSantis's mind, like 18 year olds, instead of being like 65, 35 Democrats would be, would be no worse than 50 50 if they weren't being taught this stuff in school and right? their minds, you have a bunch of like conservatives going to colleges, um, and getting into their freshman seminars and getting brainwashed by Marxists. And then four years later, they're, you know, they're great conservative children who are saving themselves for marriage, um, have, have turned into these like, you know, um, liberal hedonists, uh, who, who want to, uh, dress up as Stalin for Halloween or whatever, you know, which is just such a bizarre caricature of what actually happens in college. I couldn't even tell you. I mean, I don't think that there's more than, like, 7,000 women's studies majors in the entire country, right? Like, the, the overwhelming majority of people go to, like, get these STEM degrees that DeSantis wants them to get. Um, and, and, like, every, uh, every humanities and social science and, uh, and, you know, women's studies, gender studies, black studies, all this stuff, all these departments are under, are under total siege by their own liberal left-wing uh, administrations who want to turn the places into little degree factories for, uh, sports reputation management majors or whatever. Right. I can tell, I don't know if you can tell them a little bit <laughs> I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about this one. So I'm yeah, <laughs> going to not gonna say anything else <laughs> about that. But, uh, anyway, I think it's a, I think it's their plot to like get young people back. And I, they were so wrong about the sources of, of young people's opposition to the Republican party. Okay. young people don't need to be taught critical race theory in seventh grade um, to see that, that black people get gunned down by the police at wildly disproportionate rates uh, to, to white people. They don't need to be taught um, Marx in their freshman seminar to see that like the, the wild um, and unbridgeable inequality in, in the United States is getting worse. Um, they don't need to, to, to be uh, to be indoctrinated by an econ professor to see that they can't afford a house, um, and that a lot of the trappings of, of what we think of as, as middle class comfort in this country are out of reach for them. Like uh, they don't need to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, they don't need to spend 30 hours in a classroom with a radical climate activist to see that there has not actually been a winter in Chicago this year. I don't know what's going on out there, Ben, but it's like it's like late March weather, and it doesn't seem to have any end. Um, and young people are not stupid; they can see these things, and they can see these things, and then they can look at the Republican Party and be like, "What does the Republican Party want to do?" Oh, uh, more cops, but fewer regulations on cops. Um, you got the former president of the United States talking about how he loves it when like cops like hurt people when they put them in police cars. Um, you've got the whole Republican Party on board with climate denialism. Uh, you've got the Republican Party on board with policies that are going to make inequality worse it's not about what happens in school, Ben. It's about, it's about reality. And he can't change that reality by manipulating it in his schools. I mean, he, he will manipulate the schools, right? That's, that's for sure. And, uh, I wouldn't want to be a professor at a public university in Florida right now, but, um, the project itself is not going to work for them. Sorry.
1: Yeah. I've lived through so, uh, many moments like this where uh, Democrats feel compelled to out Republican Republicans uh, in a debate shaped by Republicans. Uh, you go back to look at the fifties, it was democratic party joining Kennedy and Truman joining Nixon and demanding, go, trying to out uh, anti-communist, the re- Republican party. I mean, uh labor unions joining that crusade and uh, just being so afraid of being painted as a commie back then it's it's very similar i see just the parallels this is just a modern day parallel and you're right like ultimately you can't beat the republicans at this game you get what I'm saying? Sooner or later, you have to take a, a, a position, an ideological position with legislation. This is what Biden is struggling with. So you have to acknowledge that your climate change exists, global warming exists, and then you come up with a program you know, to address it. If you take what Pamela Pound is saying, which is just a replica of what David Brooks has been saying and all the others, then you would not come up with a climate change program to use the one example and um and so yeah i uh, i find it very dispiriting that the new york times continually gives such a prominent voice position to this voice uh and then they're on the then they'll write an article you know about oh my god the the polar caps are melting you know <laughs> meanwhile on the op-ed page <laughs> let's just pretend it's not
0: melting very frustrating david very very frustrating i have a theory that pamela paul is not a real person she's just a composite of like 50 something white women it's like a it's like it's like a dear prudence column where you just switch the columnist out and pamela paul is just like sort of a, a, brand. a brand it's a computer writing this. uh
1: like i said it's she's the ideological soulmate of david brooks i don't know if you've been i've been reading well i for 20 years it seems like i've been reading this stuff
0: well wow, uh, she and, is she she um, Brett Stevens's ex-wife or did, did i dream that
1: i wow that's a level of of a knowledge of new york times a trivia that well beyond my pay grade i didn't know <laughs> yeah he's she, another yeah. one he's, it's Stevens ex-wife.
0: she was the she was the book editor at the new york times that. and they were married and uh there's meritocracy for you folks um, <laughs> yeah. The Paul got her like, there's three hundred and thirty million people or, in this or vice versa. You, you can't give a column to somebody that wasn't married to one of your other columnists? Come on, man. It's unbelievable. So folks
1: know Brett Stevens are uh, this is a guy uh who is proudly conservative, uh, but he says he doesn't like Trump. So his in a, his thing is he'll write these columns where he w- denounced the Democrats as losers uh, and says they must take programs that would have been popular, I don't know, in the Bush administration, second Bush administration uh, in roughly like 2003. And that's the secret to winning. And I'm like, why have two parties? Just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Very bizarre guy. You know what I mean? Uh, he's always, he takes it to an extreme. Uh, and he'll write, like, this is a serious time. We must. He's one of those guys who goes, it's a serious time. We must address Social Security and Medicare. This is serious now, folks. This is serious. They get all. This is serious. Yeah, it's uh, been serious, serious for 70 years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's serious. Uh, it's seriously, you're not dependent on it. That's what's serious. Uh, you don't need it. So it's easy for you to cut it. Uh, all right. Uh, oh my God, there's so much uh, shenanigans to discuss. I didn't even tell you what I was going to. There's a breaking story right now in the in the Washington Post. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, uh Anna uh, Paulina uh, Luna is a congresswoman from Florida, uh, and it turns out she has embellished uh, tremendously uh, her backstory, uh, and for political purposes, she hasn't gone as far as far as I can tell as George Santos just. You know, so I discussed this in an earlier show, the difference between lying and embellishment. Uh, But uh, (laughs) Republican Party, man, they're like, you dealt with this last time we were in the show. We talked about the party of liars. It's like it's a parade that just gets longer and longer, David. You know, it's um, uh, and the need for Kevin McCarthy now to rush to her defense because he needs her vote. Uh, while he's like he's rushing to George Santos's defense, uh, even Alec McMitt Romney's denouncing him, uh just shows I guess your your larger point that the Republicans, despite what uh Pamela Pound thinks, are struggling right now.
0: Yeah, I mean I I'm just I'm just seeing this story now about uh uh, Anna Paulina Luna. I bet, is it is it? Do you think it's out Anna Paulina? Do you think people outside of Chicago pronounce this word Paulina instead of Paulina? I was really shocked when I came here um, 13 years ago and we pronounced People, I was like, yeah, I was over there on Paulina, on Paulina Street and they were like, it's Paulina. I said, okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> Whatever you say. Yeah, no, it's a Chicago uh, thing. Mark <laughs> Mozart. Yeah. We can go through a whole list of names in Chicago. Yeah.
0: Dust Plains Avenue. This just is a learning curve here, you know. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just perfectly in keeping with the party ethos right now, um, which is it. It it doesn't matter how shamelessly you lie about yourself, your background, your history, your positions. It goes right back to them, you know, pretending to not want to cut Medicare and Social Security. Like once you once you start telling lies, it's easier to start telling more. Uh, It's like once you've shoplifted it's and you've done it successfully it's much easier to do it the next time um and so people like santos and trump who's you know the 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 god emperor of lies uh, pe- people like this <clears throat> once they realize they can get away with embellishing or making up facts about themselves they keep doing it um so i, don't, I haven't, I haven't time to see exactly what it, is. it seems like she like you know painted her childhood as more dire than it, than it was. Um, I don't know what it is about our politics that like people feel like they have to say that they grew up hard um, when like 95% of Congress grew up rich, you know, I want to see a campaign launch video that was like, yep. Yeah, um, I grew, I went to private schools. So I had the, I had the poshest childhood vote for me, you know, like, cause that's the truth of most of these people, man. You know, most of them went to Harvard, um, and, and had very, uh, uh, very pleasant childhoods uh, but uh people want to know that you've struggled i guess and i, I understand that but um you, you don't want to make it well, up. well there's
1: the the a great essay the myth of the self-made uh, man abraham lincoln and the myth of the self-made man uh that i read like once every other year or richard hofstadter it just sums it up. There's a myth in America that we're, we, we, we are self-made, that if you come to America, you uh, you can make it here. Like uh, You have opportunities. Uh, so the notion that you had assistance along the way runs counter to that myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're absolutely correct. Everybody, Democrat, Republican, will accentuate their humble origins. Uh, and I don't even pretend to do that. My father was a professor. My mother was a school teacher. There was nothing humble about my origins. It was really safely. I always say this is what everybody should have. You go to camp in the summer. You know, <laughs> you get to go out to eat once in a while. But uh, yeah, no, there's the myth of the self-made, and you can't. Oh, we're going to get into Chicago now. You can't be from the suburbs. You'll notice this. You say you've been in Chicago for 13 years now. You'll never find anyone in the city of Chicago who says they're from fill in a blank what suburb. They're always from Chicago. And then you ask them, well, what high school do you go to? And it's a suburban high school. Right. So it's like this bizarre little game they play. Oh, I'm from Chicago. And then, like, like you're a street gang member now. I'm you're tough. You know You know what I mean? Like, you're tougher. Right. You're smarter. I went to that uh, note in all right, Chicago, let's get into Chicago school of Glenview
0: West, right? So.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I read it. Right. Yeah. Uh, New Trier. That's where I went. Uh, anyway, um, so let's close uh, with. Uh, Chicago politics talk in the abstract, I and mean, you know, f- uh, follow it obsessively like you do national politics. But we are in the midst of a uh, mayoral campaign, been talking about it a lot on the show. Uh, there are nine candidates running uh, one is uh, of the MAGA variety, Paul Vallis, uh, one is clearly centrist uh, that would be the incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, Another one is uh, Jesus Chewy Garcia, who is trying to constantly reposition himself. He had been a centrist, then he became a lefty, and now he's back to being a centrist. Not quite sure at any given day where he is. He's uh, trying to look for that sweet spot. Uh, And then the rest are, to various degrees, uh, lefties and liberals. Um. Could you imagine the system we have now is that the nine of them will run the two with the, no one will get over 50% of the votes. So the two highest vote getters will meet off in a runoff uh, in April. And so we could end up with a MAGA man as the mayor of the city of Chicago, uh, Paul Vallis. Uh, What would it be like if we had ranked choice voting in Chicago, David, go ahead.
0: Well, this would all be much more pleasant. Um, So the, it's, I think it's worth remembering that these like um, two-stage runoff elections were explicitly designed to drive down minority turnout. Um, they were pioneered in the American South, um, in places like Georgia. Um, <clears throat> and the whole purpose, the whole purpose of them, um, is to have a second stage election where black turnout is lower than in the first stage. I, I think that's why we have it here historically. I don't necessarily think that's why, being, why it's being less, left into place, right? I think there's just institutional inertia at this point. <clears throat> but the fact that we have a mayoral election, a really consequential mayoral election, in two stages in the middle of winter, um, I, I understand the second stage is not in winter, right? But the, but the first stage is, right? having any kind of election in Chicago in late February is is deranged, okay? To add to that derangement, This, this thing where you have the, um, what we used to call a jungle primary, right? Where anybody from any party can jump in and then the final two people go, um, to the, to the election. And it's the first week of April. Right. Um, is, is, is something that it's going to, it's going to turn, it's Mm going to bring turnout down in the second stage. Right. Like that's what we, we, what you saw when Lightfoot and Preckwinkle, um, and it was because, you know, Lightfoot was winning by so much that, you know, the turnout was very low, um, and you have here a situation where the progressive vote could be split between three or four different people, right? You've got, um, Brandon Johnson, who I really like, you've got Cam Buckner, who seems fine to me too. Um, you've got, um, Chewy, right? Like those are, those are the big three, right? There's a big three, either progressives or people who say that they're progressives. <laughs> I'm running to the mayor, <clears throat> um, and there's one Willie Wilson who seems to be in like a universe of his own. Um, and then there's, there's Vallis, like the cop vote, right? Do you like cops? Vote for this guy. Um, and it's possible. I mean, there's also the incumbent mayor who's running. <laughs> like, I think nobody really seems to be giving her any, any chance of winning. Um, because she's managed this really impressive political feat of alienating almost everyone in the city <clears throat> for one reason or another. Very, very, very impressive work, Laurie um and to to that sort of like policy alienation she's added just like just seems to be like a personally deeply unpleasant person um there's a an organization my wife uh, introduced me to this uh this group that puts together uh, a voter guide called the girl I guess voter guide uh, have you heard of this yeah um that oh, yeah, just says
1: it, she's running the show mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah she's great uh, the, the, the rare write up was she's like can we just have someone who's not a jerk that's <laughs> the mayor of chicago wouldn't that be really unique? So anyway, the, the danger here is that pro- progressives will split their vote between three different candidates and that like Vallis and Lightfoot or Vallis and Wilson or Wilson and Lightfoot or you know, two people that we don't want in the runoff are going to make it to the runoff. They're yeah, like, what, <clears throat> what the, the left in Chicago should really want is a clear shot, um, at another candidate, right? Whether that's Brandon Johnson versus Lightfoot or Buckner versus Vallis or whatever, Or in a great, you know, the ideal world, but like two of them make it to the, you know, uh, we get to, we had to choose between like Johnson and and Buckner or Johnson and Chewy or something. That would be great too. Um, But it's very hard for the, for an average voter to navigate this system because you have to vote strategically knowing that the disaster of two bad candidates making it to the runoff is hanging over everything. Like there's a, there's a, I'm starting to pay a little bit more attention to this stuff, Ben, because I've got a kid, you know, I've got a kid going to CPS next year. Um, you know, it looks like we're going to be here forever, um, in Chicago. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to be a more uh, informed and participatory citizen in my own city's politics. So we've got a, we've got a race in the 50th ward, uh, Doug Silverstein and Muez Bawani. Um, and they keep asking me, but you know, Bawani's people keep asking me if I'm going to vote early. I'm like, I'm voting for you. I don't care about the Twitter thing. You know, so it's, it would have been better if that had not happened. But um, anyway, uh, I'm voting for this dude. And they're like, are you going to vote early? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't vote early because I don't know how this is all going to shake. I need to wait until election day to have the latest polling data to make sure that I vote strategically. Like I want to vote for Brandon Johnson. Okay. But if he's, if I vote for him now and he's polling in fourth place on February 28th, I, I don't want. You know, I don't want my vote to contribute to like a vallis Willie Wilson nightmare scenario or something. Um, and the the way to avoid all of this stuff is ranked choice voting. Um, it's this is like I, I cannot think of a clearer example of an election that needs ranked choice voting than Chicago mayoral politics. Um, <clears throat> it is just it's unfathomable to me that we have not pushed this this reform through um, because in a ranked choice voting system, I would I would put Johnson for. I mean, I'm just telling you what my own personal preferences are here. I put Johnson first, I'd put probably Buckner second and Chewy third. um, And then I'd sleep like a baby that night, you know, knowing that one of, you know, some progressive is going to get to the second round. If there's minimal coordination between the progressive candidates, we'll get one of them into that second round Um, and, and, and not you know, inadvertently contribute to, uh, a MAGA person becoming the mayor of Chicago, which would be such a disaster. So, um, if any of your listeners not familiar with rank choice voting, it's just, you just rank order the candidates from one to nine. Um, and then when they count them up, they eliminate the last, the lowest vote getter. They look at those ballots, who did that person, who did they rank second? And your vote goes to that person, you know? Um, so it's a, it's a, it's, it makes strategic voting, uh, irrelevant because you get to vote for who you really love and rank the person that maybe you think has a better chance second, so you're not throwing away your vote.
1: Yeah, they have it in Evanston. Evanston just approved it, the suburb just north of the city of Chicago. So uh, it would be a different political universe uh, if um, we had ranked choice voting. And I'll just tell you this, not to make you feel, if you're going to settle in Chicago, I'm going to teach, give you a little advice. Um, it will take Chicago at, at least 30 years to do the right thing, at least 30 years, okay? And there always be a pushback to do the wrong thing. So you think you finally got it settled and you got the right thing, and then nope, along comes... Another effort to push it back. So I can give you a whole history on this. We used to have a primary system for electing mayors uh, where the Democrats had a primary, the Republicans had a primary, and then the winners faced off. The Democrats always clobbered the Republicans until 1983 when a black man, Harold Washington, won the Democratic primary and eked out a win. I mean eked out a win, David, in one of the ugliest, most racist political campaigns you have ever can imagine over uh, a Republican named Bernie Upton. Uh And the powers that be in the state of Illinois, Republican and Democrats, decided, uh-uh, we're not doing this again. Uh, and they switched it to what we have now. Uh, once Harold Washington, uh, he was out of the way, he died in office, Richie Daly was in. And so they're happy with the system that we have now, as bizarre as it is. If there, it took about 20 years to get an elected school board about to send your kid to school and so we in a couple of years we'll have an elected school board and they're still acting like the mainstream papers and the, the corporate people in chicago are still acting like this is a dangerous chaotic experiment <laughs> I'm like it's called democracy so cool. i'm just giving you I, it, yes it makes all the sense in the world but the only way uh, a uh, cut taxes on rich people, uh, privatize public schools, uh, spend more money just throwing at the police department without even thinking about what what we're doing with the money. With that money, the only way a candidate like that can win is if we have the system we have now, and so we're going to be stuck with that system uh, for probably the rest of my life you're younger than me so you may you'll be an old guy you can walk along and like oh ben we finally we did, <laughs> <gonna start> <laughs> we did it i don't know if you'll still be in chicago then uh uh but yeah crazy system and uh moise buwani's been on the show twice so uh he is in my humble opinion an outstanding candidate for all of in the 54 yeah I all agree. right david uh, good yes uh, good stuff, as always. And how, where can people? Just tell them where they can find you and read your stuff, spell your name, because you re- they should really read the Newsweek column. It's excellent. So take it away. there.
0: Sure. Um, I'm, I'm at newsweek.com. You just search for my name there. It has an archive of all of my columns. I'm on Twitter at David M. as in Michael, David M. Ferris. Um, and I write for The Week. There's an archive there. So um, The Week and Slate and Newsweek all have a compilation of everything I've written for them. Um, and I, I generally put a lot of stuff out on Twitter <clears throat> when I publish it. Not so much for the week anymore because that's more news writing. But um, when I when I publish something with Slate Newsweek, I usually tweet it out. So Twitter is the best p- place to find me. I have a web page hosted by Roosevelt um, that has uh, all of my links to your shows and that that kind of stuff on it. Um, that uh, you can find me there too. So happy to connect with with anybody. All right. Very good. David Ferris is going to get more
1: involved in Chicago politics. Uh Oh, I don't know if the city can handle you, David. Get ready
0: uh, for Chicago politics. Quite a ride. Thanks again, David. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Ben. I'll see you next time. Take care, everybody.